Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be talking about Algeria, where hundreds of thousands of people have taken to the streets to protest against the presidential campaign of President Abdelaziz Bouteflika, an ailing man in his 80s who is threatening to run for a fifth term. To help me make sense of this, I have an all-star cast. Down the line from New York, we have Andrew Lebovich, who is a visiting fellow at ECFR and expert on all things Algerian. And um, from Tunis, down another line, we have Anthony Dworkin, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And sitting next to me here in London is Chloe Teven, who is the coordinator of our Middle East and North Africa program, and also an expert on all things North African. So, Andrew, why don't you go first and tell us um, what's going on? Well, so this has been a, a really interesting period and a quite intense and illuminating period for Algeria. Um, there have been massive protests since uh, since last month, since the end of last month, sparked by uh, the official confirmation that President Bouteflika would run for a fifth term in office. And uh, there are a couple of noteworthy things about these protests. One simply has been their size. There are estimates of hundreds of thousands, even more than that, protesting not just in the main cities of Algeria, but really across the country, um, in in smaller cities, in towns, in the Sahara, really all over. Another aspect has been that these protests have been, on the whole, extremely peaceful. um, And protesters have chanted, Sinmiya, Sinmiya, peaceful, peaceful. Um, And they've also often urged each other to avoid violence. And even there are these uh, incredible scenes across social media of Algerians cleaning up after the protest, picking up their um, their trash, uh, handing out water, and then picking up the bottles afterwards. So that's another aspect that's, that's very important and important to emphasize. Uh, a third really important aspect of the protests is that while there have been some attempts to, to organize them and some attempts um, to put them under the header of uh, protests being organized by different, uh, different opposition groups, different civil society groups, they really have been quite um, quite spontaneous and quite widespread um, across uh, across Algerian youth, Algerian professional classes. There have been protests of, of doctors and lawyers uh, and others. And so this really has become uh, quite a, a broad-based movement, even if it's not organized for the moment, even if it doesn't have one set of, uh, of, of organizers or statements aside from uh, the opposition to President Bouteflika standing for another term and wider opposition to the, the system that governs Algeria today. So President Bouteflika was very silent about this for 10 days, partly because he's ill and is in hospital in Geneva anyway. Um, but uh, he has now officially uh, been registered to run, even though he didn't show up in person, which some people say uh, is necessary uh, to do, um, but he has uh, also responded to, to the protests. He sent a letter to the protesters. Do you want to tell us what was in his letter? So, so he made a series of promises in this letter, um, and the letter started with a, a kind of recognition that he had listened to the Algerian people, that he had heard their demands uh, for really for a better life and for political change. And so, uh, that he promised he promised six different things uh, in this letter. 
which included uh, economic reform, political reform, a new constitution, uh, even talks about a new, a new constitution to inaugurate a new republic. Um, but then the, the big part of this is, of course, promising to organize a national conference uh, that would be independent and that would represent all of Algerian society. And then th that national conference would decide on dates for a presidential election and very explicitly that this presidential election would choose his successor. So, so another promise is the promise not to stand for election in that new election. But it's a bit of an odd thing because he's saying, if you elect me president, then I'll or, uh, we'll organize this conference, which will itself organize another presidential election where I won't be candidate. And so it's, um, it, it's something that is not, I think, likely to really gain a lot of support. Bouteflika had promised a national conference uh, even before the protests broke out, um, and he had organized a national conference before, uh, after the presidential elections in 2014. But it's uh, many people are saying that this is probably uh, too little, too late. The protests already had a significant amount of momentum, and at this point, they're also asking the question of, well, if uh, if we are going to uh, choose a successor to the president, if the president himself will acknowledge or has acknowledged that he needs to step down, that the people want him to step down and that that's the right move, then many people are asking, well, why vote for him in these elections in April? So, Chloe, you've been following reactions um, to this both uh, in Algeria, but also across the region. What, what do you think the, the likely response to Bouteflika's promises are going to be? So, as Andrew just said, it it is true that a lot of the responses to Bouteflika's letter have ultimately focused on the fact that this transition could potentially happen without Bouteflika running again. So there is increase, there are increasingly calls for Article 102 of the Constitution to be, uh, to be used in order to uh, postpone the elections and to organize perhaps a constituent assembly or a national conference without holding the election first and re-electing President Bouteflika. Um, this is by no means uh, the ch now the chant in the streets, but this is increasingly something that the political opposition who met on Monday uh, suggested, and it's also something that uh, young intellectuals uh, organized as the jeunes, jeunes engagés have uh, proposed. So it seems that there's increasingly this idea that uh, the transition can actually be organized without Bouteflika running again. And this comes down to the fact that the the main, the main uh, thing that the protesters are actually asking for is for Bouteflika not to run again. But behind this, uh, there's a multitude of different, uh, of different desires and, and, and concerns. Um, and when some, some analysts have suggested that the protests are just about Bouteflika, but a lot of Algerians have responded by saying, no, this is about the whole system. So it's, it's kind of unclear, uh, which it is, but, but increasingly, it looks like people are looking for a real change in terms of the whole political system. So, Anthony, you're sitting in uh, some corner of Tunis, which is where the, the Arab Spring started in 2011. And in many ways, um, 
that is the kind of model for, for what's happening now. You had a, an aging president, slightly less ill than the Algerian one, um, who people uh, got sick of in, in Tunisia. Is this, um, is this another Arab, another eruption of, of the Arab uprisings, or is this kind of different, um, more Algerian story? Well, I think it's been quite interesting just in the last few days watching here from Tunis. Um, and the Tunisians are, I would say, responding with a, you know, a complex set of emotions. On the one hand, you know, you do detect here a certain feeling of, you know, this is uh, along the lines that we pioneered. Um, on the other hand, there's also a certain nervousness here because uh, security and stability in Algeria is quite a, an important consideration for Tunisia. But, you know, more broadly, I would say that it was already one of the distinctive aspects of the Arab uprising from 2011 that they, you know, there was a kind of domino effect, but they also responded very specifically to the particular circumstances in each particular country. And, you know, the fact that these protests are erupting now in Algeria is not triggered by anything that happened a few years ago in Tunisia or elsewhere in the region. You know, this is clearly very particularly um, an, an Algerian response to what the Algerians appear to feel is just a kind of tremendous insult to this uh, ailing and incapacitated man putting himself forward for a fifth uh, mandate. So I think, you know, it has to be seen specifically in that context, and I think it's expressing itself in a, you know, in a particularly Algerian way. But some of the points that, um, that Andrew and Chloe have mentioned are definitely reminiscent of the earlier protests. You know, this sense of a kind of national awakening, the sense of civic pride, um, the commitment to peaceful action, and you know, this idea that the, the revolutionaries are kind of showing a new and more hopeful face of their country and they're kind of, you know, offering assistance to the, to the police um, harmed by tear gas or cleaning up after themselves. You know, these are tropes which did also manifest themselves in, in Tunisia and in Egypt. So I think, you know, it's a specifically Algerian phenomenon but it shows that the kind of wider social dynamics underlying it are to some degree present across the region. But in many ways, those, those dynamics which you've been seeing being played out in different ways in Tunisia and Egypt um, were first played out a long, long time ago, many, many years before the, the Arab Spring in Algeria itself. That's, that's the first country where you saw this encounter between the military and Islamism after an election and um, the, a lot of the, the kind of dynamics which have become very familiar across the region where you have the army acting as kind of custodians of, of stability against Islamist uh, groups that are trying to use the ballot box to come to power played themselves out. I mean, Andrew, how do you see the Algerian example kind of fitting in, prefiguring some of the things that we've seen happening in Egypt recently and in Tunisia as well? Well, I think uh, certainly as, uh, as Anthony pointed out, this is a distinctly Algerian context. Um, there, are, there are similarities, but of course, if you ask Algerians and, 
And when I've had this conversation with Algerians over the last several years, um, they often will sort of laugh and say, well, we already had our Arab Spring. Uh, it was in 1988. And so there is this proud revolutionary tradition in Algeria, a proud civic tradition, uh, a proud national tradition. And so Algerians look at this, I think, as in many ways and for many people as uh, as fulfilling this earlier tradition as as fitting into this earlier tradition and that's why it was it was quite noteworthy to see um people like Jamila Bouhira the, you know an original hero of the Algerian revolution against France showing up and participating in these protests so it yes there are there are certainly some similarities but then on the one hand there's an Algerian context and on the other Algerians have also observed the last several years and have learned from this example so the the government in response to these protests uh, particularly the prime minister Ahmadou Yahya sort of lauded the protest with one or didn't laud the protest but, but complimented the protests for their peacefulness on the one hand but but then gave the example of the civil war of the 1990s and then the Syrian war today as something to be avoided and that's something that that Algerians reject because they they also don't want a return to the 1990s. They also don't want uh, the Syrian civil war to be to be something that happens in Algeria or like something that happens in Algeria. So they there is a real consciousness, a political consciousness, a, a national consciousness, an ideological consciousness in Algeria that I think people often dismiss um, that is that is distinct, even though obviously Algerians observe the world around them. And, and then make their own choices. So, Kyrie, what's the European response been so far? Well, by and large, the Europeans have actually been quite quiet thus far. Um, there's been very few official responses that, uh, that I've noticed. Um, and uh, what one notable response was uh, Macron calling his ambassador to Paris for a briefing. Um, but what has been notable, uh, and what a lot of Algerians have also been pointing out on social media is that a lot of the European press is responding with this kind of, uh, rhetoric of, of fear and of, of, uh, worries about instability coming from Algeria in the wake of these protests. Um, a lot of people have thus far pointed out that this is completely, uh, you know, not the case in, thus far the, the protests have been completely peaceful. There hasn't been, you know, any cause for, for concern regarding the country's wider stability. Um, and, uh, it's it's really going to depend on the response of the of Bouteflika and those around him uh, as to how the situation on the ground actually uh, develops. And what do you think that they should do, Anthony? Well, um, you know, I think the the most important thing is uh, at this point, I would say to to let the situation play out without uh, an attempt to crash down. I mean. You know, in a way, it's not uh, it's not up to me to recommend a response, but I think I would concur with what um, Andrew and Clay have said, that the response that we've seen so far is clearly, um, you know, falling far short of what the protesters are asking for. Um, and there is this paradoxical quality of uh, Bouteflika 
saying that he's going to run again only to, to stand down after the election, um, which does clearly seem to suggest that what's happening is that they simply need more time to put in place a kind of plan B um, from the power structures within Algeria and that uh, you know, they hadn't expected this and it's taken them by surprise and they simply don't have the capacity to, to come up with any alternative at this point. Um, you know, we've talked a bit about the, um, the parallels and resonances with the earlier Arab uprisings. And one of the things that I think, in retrospect, pretty um, telling about the, the, what happened in Egypt and what happened in Tunisia and elsewhere is that it was in those countries where the security forces were themselves divided or withdrew their support from the regime that we saw a successful revolution or kind of initially successful revolution. You know, that happened in Egypt where the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces essentially told Mubarak it was time to go. You know, some people even call it a kind of coup revolution rather than a revolution. Um, and the same in Tunisia. Um, ben Ali knew that he didn't have the, the confidence of the security forces behind him. Um, and so I think the crucial question in Algeria now is going to be about the kind of um, cohesiveness of the regime and of the power structures um, around Bukaslika. And if we see enough of them feeling that they have to offer more and come up with a more plausible transition plan now, you know, then there could be real change. Um, the danger is if they try and stick together and you know, step up towards a more kind of repressive response, then the situation could, you know, go in a more kind of negative direction. So for me, that's a crucial question to look for. So, Andrew, if there is a, if Budaflika does go, you know, who's going to replace him? Is there a kind of continuity um, military candidate who can carry on for the regime? Do the protesters have someone that they can unite around? No, and, and I also think that we need to step back a little bit because... Uh, one of the key differences, if we're trying to look at this, say, in the context of other Arab uprisings, the Arab Spring, is that the structure of state is different in Algeria than it was in Tunisia under Ben Ali uh, or in Egypt under Hosni Mubarak or now under Sisi. Um, it, yes, the military is very predominant as an institution, but um, the military is not or, or has so far not been willing to really make these decisions in recent years. Um, but the, the business classes are even divided among themselves. Um, so there's a kind of overlapping power structure of, of politics, of business, of the security forces um, that doesn't always fit together very well. And that's one reason why I personally think we haven't seen any movement toward a, a consensus candidate, so, say a, a, a government consensus candidate, uh, to succeed Bouteflika. There are there are legal provisions in the constitution, for instance, if the president is removed due to um, due to incapacity. Uh, so there are there are provisions like that, but I, I don't think there's a clear consensus candidate right now. People are uh, saying you know there are certain names that circulate, like the former foreign minister on some um, but it's it's very hard to tell if those names circulate. Because people genuinely think or genuinely know that uh, that they're under consideration, or if it's because people just uh, don't know and are speaking into the void, in a sense, 
um, it, it really is very, very hard to know uh, whether or not these names that circulate come from a place of knowledge or if it's just that people are, are kind of idly speculating because no one knows. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's very hard to say going forward. But I do think that the reason we've seen so much immobility over the last couple of years is precisely because there is no consensus figure. And be interesting to hear from you, both you, Chloe and Anthony, um, from a European perspective, what is the significance of Algeria? Obviously, it's pretty important for, for France because uh, the colonial experience there is seared into the consciousness of the, of the nation. And there are lots of people of Algerian origin who live in France. Uh, a lot of oil and gas gets bought from Algeria by different European countries. A lot of terrorists have come from Algerian backgrounds, uh, or they, they tend to be people who were born and had different European nationalities when they... But, I mean, why should, why should we care about Algeria? Well, Algeria, firstly, is a nation of uh, over 40 million people that's on uh, Europe's southern border. So it's it's... It's a large and very important nation just by nature of its geography. Uh, it, I mean, is very important to Europe just by nature of its geography. Um, on top of that, it's the number one gas exporter to both Italy and Spain. Uh, and it, its largest import uh, partners are France and Spain. Um, so it's an important market for those countries. Um, beyond the, the kind of those economic facts, yes, it has a, a long and complicated history with France, but there has there have been quite close relations between the French government and the Algerian government in recent years, um, and they've they've created quite a number of different forums in order to discuss security, also to discuss. Uh, economic exchange. Um, and Algeria is the most significant security partner in the region, although it, it, it remains quite, uh, it remains very, uh, very much, uh, focused on, or it, it has certain principles when it comes to how it, uh, it interacts as a security, uh, actor in the region, but it has been very important in the Sahel, and I think uh, Andrew would have more to say on that topic, uh, but it has the most significant army and uh, and has been quite important in the African Union and in the institutions of the African Union in terms of peace and security as well. Um, there are... In, in, at least in the most recent, uh, attacks that we've seen in Europe, very few of them have actually had, uh, Algerian heritage or come from Algeria. Um, and that was one of the, even when it came to the figures in terms of foreign fighters in Syria, it was actually Tunisia and Morocco had much higher numbers of foreign fighters than Algeria did. So it hasn't actually been significant in that regard in recent years. But I think Anthony and, and Andrew might have uh, more to say on that topic. I mean, really, I, you know, I agree very much with what Chloe said. You know, Algeria has been uh, seen from, you know, in, from a European standpoint, it's a kind of complicated relationship. Um, the Algerians have a very strong commitment to, to national sovereignty. Um, they're much less 
willing then Tunisia or Morocco to to work in a kind of do a, in a more transparent and open way. But they have been a reliable security partner, and as Chloe says, it has been quite striking that the recent wave of radicalization and foreign fighters has you know largely passed Algeria by, um, which people attribute to you know among other reasons to the terrible experience of that country during the the civil war there the 90s yeah exactly so um and the other thing which is worth mentioning i think is although algeria is is as i say a kind of you know somewhat touchy partner there um a lot of members of the algerian elite are kind of relatively frequently traveling to Europe, whether it's for, for medical care in the, in the case of President Peter Flicke. Switzerland. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, or they have uh, financial links or educational links or whatever. So on a personal level, there are ties to the elite. Um, and I know some people feel that uh, this would make the kind of threat of travel bans, uh, a reasonably, you know, significant tool that might cause some people to, to hesitate about going too far down a very repressive route in response to the protests. Okay. Um, I think we've covered quite a lot of, of, of ground. Obviously, everyone's going to be holding their breath over the next days and weeks as we see how people respond to the the protests for for all the talk and, and it's good that we talk about the peacefulness of the protesters and also what the protesters have learned from the 1990s you know we also have to note what the state learned from the 1990s and what the security forces learned from the 1990s and so while the responses of, of tear gas and truncheons have not been particularly peaceful, it could be much worse. And even in 2011, during the um, during the protests in Algeria, then the state was quite careful about how they used force and when they used force and where they used force. Um, so, so the state and the security forces are also in a bit of a difficult situation where they're trying to balance um, a number of these concerns and also trying to trying to avoid too much repression that would potentially um, really, really make the protests or give the protests even more momentum and force. Okay, so I think we'll all be watching very closely over the next days and weeks to see how the protests develop, how people respond to President Bouteflika's letter, whether he ends up standing or not, and whatever happens, whoever, what happens in the elections and in uh, the political process that, that happens thereafter. So I'm sure we'll come back to that with this podcast as well. Um, but I think we've got one thing left to do now uh, before we end, which is our bookshelf segment. Has someone got something on their bookshelf? I think, I think there are two books for Algeria that, uh, that are great. Um, one is the book that I cite in the, uh, at the end of the piece I just wrote, uh, Abdurrah. Um, it's, a, it's a short and really wonderful text on contemporary Algerian history. And then for English speakers, uh, the, the Oxford historian James McDougall has written a kind of comprehensive history of modern Algeria. It's called A History of Algeria. And, and that's also a really great primer for anyone trying to, to learn more about contemporary Algeria. Okay. Anthony, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I'm going to add another book on Algeria, which I have to confess I had mentioned before when I was standing in the toast um, of this podcast a few weeks ago. 
Um, but it's, uh, it's a very good read and quite kind of atmospheric in terms of as a reminder of Algeria's history as a kind of center of the, you know, the global kind of third world movement um, back in the 60s. So it's, um, it's by a writer called Elaine Moktesi, uh, and it's called Algiers Third World Capital. Um, and it's a really very kind of evocative snapshot of that period where a kind of variety of different international left-wing and anti-colonial causes were sort of congregating in Algeria by an American woman who was a sort of fellow traveler who um, married, uh, you know, one of the significant figures in the, in the protest and was really, uh, I mean, married a, a significant figure in the movement and was really at the heart of uh, everything that was happening there. Okay, what about you, Chloe? Well, um, to complement those two, I would suggest um, Hugh Roberts and Luis Martinez' work on the 1990s and the Civil War, because I think it's really important to understand that in order to understand the importance of these slogans of Silmia, Silmia today, uh, to understand the, the recent history of Algeria. Great. And I'm going to recommend once again Andrew Lebovich's piece, Protests and the Ailing President, Algeria political crisis and then um, outside of the realm of Algeria there is also a very interesting article which has been published in all 28 member states of the European Union by Emmanuel Macron um, today on the 4th of March called Renewing Europe which is um, his uh, response to the challenge from Orban, Salvini and Steve Bannon in the European elections where he talks about a reimagining of the European project around three kind of central values of democracy, protection and progress, all of which I think people are talking about on the streets of Algiers at the moment. Anyway, um, if you are interested in all of those things, there are links to, our, to them on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let your friends, family, acquaintances, other people, fans, followers know about it by writing about it on your social media page or on ours and above all by heading to whatever platform you use to download this podcast and giving us a review and a rating. But for now, from Andrew Lebovich, Chloe Tiefen, Anthony Dworkin and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The Researcher of ECFR's podcast is currently on holiday in South America, but our editor is Caterina Botel-Atzinaro. <laughs>